Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Today on Policy Forum Pod, money for nothing? Would a universal basic income really allow you to get your kicks for free? or just leave your economy in dire straits. We'll find out why the idea is attracting such interest around the world. We've almost reached the point where unless we move to a basic income, we are going to see neo-fascist populists growing everywhere. Whether a basic income could spell the end of welfare systems. Government bureaucracies under the welfare states around the world are the worst possible instruments for trying to deal with human needs. And just how much that money for nothing is actually going to cost. If you give $22,000 to every adult in the population, that's about 88 million adults, so that's about um, $360 billion. Stay with us. Hello, I'm Martin Pierce, and welcome to Policy Forum Pod. What would you do if your income were taken care of? Those are the words on a poster that was put out by supporters in Switzerland of a universal basic income ahead of that country's recent referendum to see if one would be introduced. That referendum failed, it got voted down, but despite that, the idea of a basic income is catching on all around the world. Basic income, as you're going to hear today, is an idea to give pretty much everybody a set amount each year. It's not means-tested. Everyone is eligible without having to look for work or anything like that, and nobody will put conditions on how you spend it. It's just yours. It's a concept that's gaining traction in a number of countries, and there's a raft of pilot projects, schemes, and experiments happening all over the place. Interestingly, it's an idea which attracts support from a range of different political views on both the left and the right, uh, though proponents on the right have a very different take from those on the left on how those schemes should be structured and what their purpose is. In this Policy Forum pod, you're going to hear from some of the world's leading experts on a basic income. There are some really fascinating insights and provocative ideas ahead. Coming up later, we'll hear about how a basic income could completely replace the welfare state as we talk to Dr. Charles Murray in the US. We'll crunch the numbers on what it might cost with Professor Peter Whiteford, and we'll talk to the leader of a group about to undertake a significant basic income experiment in Finland, Professor Oli Kangas. First, though, we're going to hear from Guy Standing. Guy is a professor at the School of Oriental Studies in the University of London, and he's the co-founder and president of the Basic Income Earth Network. There's a link to find out more about that in the description of this pod. Guy is the author of a number of really well-known books, including The Precariat, The Dangerous New Class, and he's one of the world's leading experts on a basic income. I caught up with him in Geneva and we started by looking at why there seems to be an upsurge in interest in a basic income all over the world. Here's what he had to say. We've seen a resurgence in interest in the idea of a basic income lately, but it isn't a new idea, is it? 
No, you can trace it back to Thomas More in 1516, uh, who in his utopia. But there have been many advocates over the years, and it includes Nobel Prize winning economists and, and other Nobel Prize winners and very many distinguished people. What I think has changed is the context. And in my view, what has happened is that the 20th century income distribution system whereby there was a rough social compact that a certain amount of national income went to capital in the form of profits and rents, and a certain amount went to labor in the form of wages and benefits and so on. That system has broken down with globalization, with a new technological revolution taking place, and with neoliberal uh, policies of labor market flexibility and so on. And what has been happening is that a growing amount of the total income has been going upwards in forms of rent and to profits, and a diminishing amount has gone down to, to labor, people relying on labor for their incomes. And in the process, a new class fragmentation has taken place with a plutocracy of crazily wealthy people, a tiny elite, but at the bottom, or near the bottom, because they're not at the total bottom, is the precariat, a growing group of people who are expected to put up with a life of unstable labor, lack of occupational identity, reliance on stagnant real wages that actually are highly volatile, so it makes them insecure, and losing various forms of rights. So you've got an angry group, and we've just seen that anger in a, in a paradoxical way exposed in the British Brexit uh, vote, where part of the precariat, what I call the atavists, the people who are falling out of old working class communities, they resent what's happening to them, but they listen to the sirens of new neo-fascist populists. And you've got the nostalgics, which are the middle group of migrants and so on, who are basically disenfranchised everywhere and you have what I call the progressives, the young, educated, who basically say F off to the, the current center-left, center-right type of politics and are not voting at all at the moment, although they're beginning to, with new political movements. And then this creates, creates a toxic situation where income insecurity is a pandemic everywhere. It's a pandemic. And in those circumstances, you cannot expect people to be rational politically. And this is one of the problems. And I believe that this is giving a new context to basic income. I really do, because it can become a pillar, not a panacea, a pillar of a new income distribution system for the 21st century. Real wages in Australia, in Britain, in Europe, in the United States, real wages will not rise much in the foreseeable future. In a globalized context of China and India and Indonesia and so on, these big countries whose workers uh, are resigned to accept a wage of one thirtieth of what a typical Australian could receive. So in those circumstances, you either put up with growing inequality and growing insecurity with the political consequences that will follow, or you do something fairly dramatic and change the income distribution system. And I think that the context uh, has changed such, to such an extent 
that we've almost reached the point where unless we move to a basic income, we are going to see neo-fascist populist growing everywhere. That's as fundamental a challenge as we could imagine. And I believe in a basic income for social justice reasons. I think that the traditional arguments associated with Thomas Paine and GDH Cole uh, and, and a few others, uh, whereby they say, look, if you accept inheritance, uh, private inheritance of wealth and income through your family or friends or whatever, then you should also think of public inheritance. The wealth of you, of me and all of us is far more to do with the efforts of our ancestors than anything you and I do by ourselves. And yet we don't know whose ancestors contributed to the, to the wealth of our society. So in a sense, a basic income could be a way of a social dividend way of sharing part of the proceeds of the efforts of our ancestors, our collective wealth. And it's a perfectly justifiable uh, argument for moving to a basic income so that everybody has a modest basic income throughout their life to give them a sense of control, give them a sense of security. And we know, we know, we know that insecure people are not rational people in moments of crisis. And unless we have a society in which everybody has a sense of basic security, not total security, basic security. So you know that in an extremist, if things go wrong, you'll have enough to pay your, for your food and your rent and your children's upkeep. That's the ultimate justification for a basic income. But I think it's become absolutely desperately needed in this new context that I've talked about. I mean, there's lots of different models of basic income being tested and, in fact, a number of pilot projects happening around the world. What's your ideal model of a basic income? How would you see it working? For me, I think the answer to that, which is a, you know, a crucial question of transition, how do you move towards a system where you've got a basic income, will depend on the, the society where it grows. In... in a European country where you've got a complex welfare system or in Australia where, where you have a means-tested system, um, one would hope that a basic income would be created by converting ex the existing system towards having an anchor of a basic income and then a social insurance top-up and then private uh, benefits gained from, from private insurance. So you, your Basic income is not going to be a total replacement. It's going to be a, a, an amount. And you gradually convert the old system to one with a, with a basic income as the base. That, that's one way of doing it. Another way of doing it would be to say, okay, we're going to leave the existing system of welfare and alongside it gradually build up a basic income. So to start with, you say, okay, we're going to have a social dividend for everybody in Australia. It's going to be uh, initially $20 for every person. We know that's not a total basic income. We know that that's just a gesture. But once you've established that everybody is receiving that, then you gradually would build it up as the source of funding for a basic income was built up. Well, in my new book on the corruption of capitalism, 
I've argued that, that building up sovereign wealth funds based on technologies, on the profits from high-tech industries, it doesn't have to be from oil, it could be from high-profit industries whereby they're, they're gaining from patents and so on, which can yield rents, I think you can build up a, a sovereign wealth fund for every country. Certainly in Australia, you could have it. It's, it's perfectly feasible. And that it's only fair and in a good society for the proceeds of that to be shared across you know, the whole country. Because the bene- why should the benefits just go to a small number in privileged corporations? So I think, and it wouldn't be contrary to a, a market system. I mean, it's not something that would disrupt uh, or be communist or any stupid name like that. It would be consistent with having a market system with people being able to have basic security. So for me, you can build it up that way or you can do it through conversion of the existing welfare systems. And it probably any country that moving in that direction could do a bit of both and, and there's no reason at all. And the last point, of course, is that every country, Australia included, the government gives vast subsidies to wealthy people, wealthy corporations, wealthy interests. Those subsidies are not consistent with a free market economy. They are regressive. In other words, they're inegalitarian. Uh, They distort the economy. And they cost about 6% of GDP, 6% of your national income. It's the same in Britain. It's the same in the United States and, and so on. That money exists for spending at the moment, it's spent on the wealthy. It could be turned into a source for giving part of the expended, part of the funding for a basic income. So to me, you've got three routes that you could use. Convert the existing welfare system, build up sovereign wealth funds, convert subsidies into the funding necessary. And then finally, you've got to realize that any existing tax rate system uh, can be reformed. And and in the last 30 years, average and marginal tax rates have come down, which are benefiting the wealthy dramatically. And there is no reason why they cannot be modestly increased, particularly for wealthy groups, because at the moment, the wealthy are, are gaining disproportionate. They haven't suddenly become brilliant by comparison with the past because their incomes have gone up hugely compared with the past. And there's no evidence that that has has economic uh, benefits for any country. Growth rates have not been increased by this growing inequality. So there's absolutely no reason why we couldn't have some increase in tax rates. But for me, there's not, it's not just a matter of a single club winning the tournament. It there are, there are various means by which it could be uh, costed and, and funded. So you're saying that there's various ways that it could be affordable for, for countries. But what sort of financial level does it have to be before it starts to make a realistic impact into, into people's lives rather than being a, a small sort of token one-off payment? I think if you, if you see it from the perspective of the precarian, uh, you can say that even something like a hundred Australian dollars a week or fifty pounds in Britain 
is going to make a significant difference to your state of mind and your your sense of security. I'm not saying that that is where you would end up and and it you know one would hope to move it up and I would set up an independent commission which would determine the affordability of any particular level and adjust it according to economic growth etc cetera, etc cetera. and I think that would remove the the tendency for governments to raise it just before an election and you know lower it afterwards um but I think what what will happen is that even a modest amount has a psychologically beneficial effect and it also has a beneficial effect on behavior and attitudes we found that in our pilots in africa and in india which we just completed big pilot uh, basic income schemes just giving uh, an amount worth one third of subsistence you know one third of the amount of income needed for for food and rent and and basic expenditures uh, had a significant effect because people had suddenly that security and in cr- individual crises uh, there was some pooling effects and so people put some of the money together and it made a huge difference on nutrition on on schooling and 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 sanitation basic things like that i would hope that you would be gradually moved up to something like 60% of subsistence you know the the needed the amount needed to raise you above poverty and at that level you're not going to re- remove incentive to labor and work i mean that one of the stupid arguments against a basic income is that people who would have basic income would be lazy we have actually found that people who have basic security work more and when they work they work more productively and more cooperatively with others it just does not make sense to think that people who got enough to pay for their food are suddenly going to become all lazy i mean ask yourself would you sit back uh, and do nothing if you suddenly were able to at least afford for your food no you want to improve your life from wherever you start right and that is the natural human condition it may be 1% maybe half a percent who become lazier right so what okay they're most likely to be relatively unproductive as people you feel sorry for them you would say well actually we'd be saving money because at the moment the australian government spends millions and millions of dollars on chasing up people to see if they are actually looking for work and blah 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 uh, so for me that that is really stupid we'd actually save money if we if public money if we didn't chase these people but in actual fact people want to improve their lives i mean that's that's the reality that's the natural human condition and i think that the the final point is that you would with a basic income you would remove what i call what we call the poverty trap okay the poverty trap means that if you're somebody who's managed to get a means tested benefit in australia or anywhere else where they have means testing that means that if you raise your income slightly you start losing your benefits because you you, you know you you no longer in poverty in total poverty so you lose it well that means that in many countries somebody going from benefits into a low wage job the type that are becoming available is facing a marginal tax rate of 80% or more okay that's a huge dis- disincentive to take 
low-wage jobs. <coughs> Excuse me. But the, in, in those circumstances, if you had a basic income and you said, okay, you will receive your basic income regardless of your work status, regardless of any of your personal statuses, you receive it as a, an Australian citizen re resident in Australia, then you could say, okay, you pay the standard rate of tax on all your earned income. So you're, you wouldn't face a marginal tax rate of 80%, which is a huge disincentive. You would pay 30% or whatever the standard rate might be at the time. That means that there's, with a basic income, you would actually have a greater incentive to do labor. Now, think through that and then say, well, why do you think having a basic income would make people lazy? It wouldn't. It would actually help make the labor market more functional, make people more secure, and encourage people to pursue a life of work and, and labor. And, and, and the final point there, of course, is we must, as I've argued in the books on the precariat, we must reconceptualize what we mean by work. Because a lot of work that is not remunerated, but which we would like to do or have to do, uh, would actually be made more possible if people had a basic income. When do you think we will see a basic income become a reality in a Western nation? Finland, the Prime Minister has just announced that there will be a pilot. He's put aside uh, 20 million uh, euros uh, equivalent uh, for the pilot. Uh, the Dutch, 19 Dutch cities have announced towns and cities have announced that they're going to do pilots of a basic income. Uh, the French finance minister has come out in favor. The Scottish nationalists have come out in favor. So the, the, there is, there's a huge movement. I'm calling this the year of the pilot. Uh, and in Ontario, in Canada, they're planning a, a pilot. And I've been approached by uh, a billionaire funder in, in California. They want to do a pilot in California. Uh, with a large amount of money that he and colleagues uh, are putting aside for that. And we're getting more pilots in Africa and, and in India. Uh, so it, it, it really has become a globally significant policy issue. Guy Standing, thanks very much for your time. Great. Really interesting stuff, and I thank Guy for his time. There's a longer version of that interview available on Policy Forum. Check it out under the Podcasts tab at policyforum.net. In the longer version, he shares some thoughts about why the Swiss referendum on a basic income failed, and he talks more about the role of the precariat in the recent EU referendum Brexit vote. It's well worth a listen. Now let's get a very different take on a basic income from the US. Dr. Charles Murray is the WH Brady Scholar at the American Enterprise Institute. He's one of the world's leading social policy researchers and the author of the book In Our Hands, A Plan to Replace the Welfare State, which looked at this very issue. Charles Murray is a senior and sometimes controversial figure in US policy discussions. His 1994 bestseller, The Bell Curve, sparked heated controversy for its analysis of the role of IQ in shaping America's class structure. His most recent book is By the People, Rebuilding Liberty Without Permission. I spoke to him over the phone from his office in Washington, D.C. Dr. Charles Murray, thanks for joining Policy Forum Pod. My pleasure. Dr. Murray, we're seeing a resurgence of interest in the concept of a basic income in many places around the world. 
as a long-time advocate for a basic income, are you pleased to see this? Oh, I'm delighted to see it. Uh, I'm also uh, encouraged because I think probably the reasons for the increased interest are similar to my own, namely that it has become obvious that the government doling out bits and pieces of various kinds of benefits is not nearly as an efficient way to help meet human needs as just giving people the money. Now, there are a number of different models for basic incomes. Can you briefly explain what your preferred model is? Yeah, my preferred model has a couple of key features. Uh, the actual amount of money that I'm giving is in American dollars, uh, $10,000 in disposable income plus health insurance. It would be deposited monthly, electronically, into a known bank account. It would be available to everyone over the age of 21. And this is a very key point. It would replace the entire welfare state. It would not be an add-on. I should say explicitly that I think a guaranteed income that simply adds on to the existing services would be a disaster. So when you mean replace the entire welfare state, what, what, are, we, what are we talking about? You've, you, you've said that healthcare would still be in there. What, what, would, what would we lose from doing this? Well, in the United States, it would get rid of Social Security, which is for the elderly. It would get rid of our medical care program for the elderly, our medical care program for uh, the poor. It would get rid of all welfare services. It would get rid of all corporate subsidies, agricultural subsidies. Any kind of payment that the government makes to individuals or to organizations uh, would be replaced by the guaranteed income. I'm interested to know what are the kind of numbers on this. You talked about uh, 10,000 being the sort of the, the payment that you would give individuals. How much would that actually cost to implement and how much would you save by winding back on all of those instruments of the welfare state? Well, for the United States, the system would cost $100 million less than uh, the existing system right now. By the year 2020, it would be about a trillion dollars cheaper because in the United States, we are seeing the costs of our entitlement programs go up so fast. I should add, however, that saving money is not really the point uh, of this. I'm talking about what I think would be a far better way of dealing with human needs in America. What you're proposing there is a fairly substantial change. What, what would be the obstacles for implementing such a system? Right now, the obstacles would be insuperable because there are so many political interests in uh, defending the current system. The good news is there will be a crisis in the funding of America's uh, transfer system over the course of the next decade. So there will have to be major reform. And I think at that point, uh, the opportunity to make the political case for passing a universal basic income it'll become much more politically realistic. And do you think it's something that's politically sellable to uh, th to the electorate, to voters? Yes, it is, but it will take some, it will take some explaining uh, because, you see, the money does go to everybody. There is uh, the details of the system, which I don't want to get bogged down in, would mean that some of it would be clawed back for uh, uh, people who are already making good incomes on their own, but they would be left with enough that they would be Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. 
Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Getting a much better deal if they did this over the course of a lifetime than the current Social Security pension system and the medical care system. It is not going to be something that is sold in a soundbite. It will have to be explained, but I think the explanations are there and are powerful. The $10,000 you've talked about isn't a great deal of money. And for those people who might be struggling to get into work, uh, it it might prove quite difficult to live on. What kind of... um, what kind of messages would you give to those kind of people? Oh, the the amount is very deliberately set so that it's not enough for a single person to live in splendid isolation. Uh, I, one of the major features of the universal basic income are the ways in which it can revitalize American civic life. In the case of uh, the $10,000, it really says to somebody, you know what, 10000 uh you cannot live a decent existence. If you are cooperative enough that you can get somebody else to go in with you or two other people to go in with you, you're looking at combined resources that can uh, allow you to live a decent life. What's more, if you get even a low-paying job, only $10,000, $15,000, $20,000 a year, all at once with the addition of the uh, uh, guaranteed income, you're looking at a path toward the middle class. So it does not say we will allow people to live as social isolates in comfort. It does say you now have the resources, no matter how disadvantaged and poor you are, to take your life in your own hands and make something of it. Are there any other benefits from such a, such a system? Oh, it would change some incentives in very positive ways, uh, particularly for such things as in the United States, uh, the, the choices that young women make about having babies. In the United States, under our system, having a baby without a husband to help k- take care of it uh, creates an income stream that wouldn't exist otherwise. Under the universal basic income, a child very appropriately represents an expense. And if you're going to have a child, you do it in full knowledge that you are going to have to devote some of your resources to caring for that child. That flip in incentives over the current system, I think, is going to make for a lot better decisions than are made now. Do you have any sense of when we might see such a model implemented? I mean, for example, would a future President Trump take the U.S. closer to doing so? Oh, what an awful prospect. Um, No, I don't think that uh, Donald Trump, if he were to be elected president has any interest whatsoever in any serious uh, reforms of America's system. He has publicly proclaimed that he won't touch the, the current system. Unfortunately, I don't think there's going to be a much better prospect for change in the near future if Hillary Clinton is, is elected. We're looking at an idea that will only come about if there is, first, a financial necessity that makes it more attractive. And second, if people rethink the proper way to deal with the difficult problems that people have, which require actually the intervention and the help of the people closest to them, 
and the government bureaucracies under the welfare states around the world are the worst possible instruments for trying to deal with human needs. And that is going to require a major rethinking of what a social democracy should be all about. So something like a future financial crisis might provide the impetus for this? Yeah. Uh, look, let's face it. Politicians hate to make major changes, particularly ones that will attract a lot of, uh, of, of negative uh, reaction, unless they positively have no choice. And in the United States, that has gotten so bad that it has to be that the cliff has to be staring you in the face and you know that one more step and you're going to go plunging over it before our politicians will take any steps. But that cliff is down the road. Okay, well, Dr. Charles Murray, thanks very much for your time. I've enjoyed it. Thank you. Welcome back. So we've heard about how a basic income could promote social equality, and we've heard about how it could be used to completely dismantle the welfare state. And coming up, we are going to have a look at the experiment in Finland and what it is that they hope to find out from that. First, though, a quick reminder that this podcast is brought to you by PolicyForum.net, Asia and the Pacific's platform for public policy analysis, debate and discussion. We're really interested in getting your thoughts on what we've talked about today. You can tweet us at Apps Policy Forum or find us on Facebook where we are Asia Pacific Policy Society. You can also email us at team at policyforum.net. Now let's dig into what it would mean to have a basic income and whether it's actually affordable for economies which already have substantial welfare states. Helping me to unpick this is Professor Peter Whiteford. Peter is the Director of the Social Policy Institute at the ANU Crawford School of Public Policy, and he's a leading figure in the structure, design and cost of welfare, particularly in Australia. Peter, thanks for joining Policy Forum Pod. My pleasure. First of all, let's talk about the Australian history of this, because the idea of a basic income is not new in Australia, is it? No, no, it goes back to the Commission of Inquiry into Poverty, chaired by Professor Henderson in the 1970s. Uh, and his solution, uh, as part of a commission, a very comprehensive commission of inquiry into poverty, was to introduce a um, uh, what they called a guaranteed minimum income, which is the same sort of idea as a basic income or a universal basic income. Now, all around the world, we're seeing a sort of renewed interest in the idea of a basic income. Why? Why do you think that is? Why? Why are people interested in the idea of a basic income? Initially, it was about. Um, simplifying welfare. Uh, And I think now it's more about the perception that the labour market is very uncertain, that uh, people's jobs are uncertain and precarious, that, uh, and that also perhaps in the future that will become even more so, particularly with uh, mechanisation and robots taking people's jobs. So a lot of the interest at the moment seems to be the idea that there'll be uh, fewer jobs for people in the future and that we'll need some form of income source for everybody and not just the categories of people we now have in the social security system. Is a basic income affordable? What would it actually cost a country? What would it cost Australia to introduce something like this? It essentially depends on the level at which you set the basic income Um, and then the level at which you tax people in order to finance it as a a consequence of the level at which you set the basic income. If you you wanted to replace the existing social security system in Australia uh, completely, um, the highest level of payments we give to people, uh, age pensioners or disability support pensioners who get 
at the moment roughly $22,000 a year in their basic payments. That's not a great deal of money, is it? Um, it's very close to 50% of median income, which is sort of generally thought of um, in European countries as you know sort of a relative poverty line. So, so we're so the current level of age pension is pretty close to a 50% of median income poverty line. So it's not a, not an awful lot of money. Um, the arithmetic of it's pretty straightforward. If you give $22,000 to every adult in the population. That's about 18 million adults, so that's about um, $360 billion. Uh, Now, having said that, or you then finance this by um, uh, higher taxes somewhere, Uh, so the net cost is not the same as the gross cost. and that where you set, how you set the tax rate determines what, you know, how much it costs additionally to the current system. But in terms of appearances, it, it appears to cost a lot more than the current system. So Commonwealth government spending on social security and welfare at the moment, that, that includes all um, community services like um, nursing homes and um, uh, services for people with disability, is about $150 billion a year. That, and that's for the entire system? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That doesn't include some of the services that state governments provide. The cash benefits that are paid out in the social security system are probably a bit over $100 billion. So if you gave everybody $22,000 rather than paying $100 billion, you'd be paying $360 billion. Uh, so so the, the budgetary cost, uh, if you replace everything... Uh, looks very high. And what sort of tax rate might people be paying under uh, basic income? Well, if you went to the full replacement of the Australian Social Security system uh, with a, um, a single payment, uh, universal basic income, uh, everybody would be paying between 50 and 60% of their other income to finance it. That's so, a pretty tough electoral sell. Yeah, as I said, the... When we look at um, taxes, we need to look at both the average rate of tax and the marginal rate of tax. So this is the marginal rate of tax, say 55% to take the middle of the 50 and 60. So that's much higher than anybody in the tax system pays now. But the average, to calculate the average rate, you have to take off the, the amount of the universal basic income. So the average rate for some people is much lower than that. So, so uh, quite a sizable proportion of people are actually either better off or no worse off under this arrangement. Uh, But generally speaking, you'd find that um, higher income earners would be paying more tax. I want to touch on one of the other criticisms that sometimes levelled at the concept of a basic income, which is the impact it has on people's incentive to work. What what do you think would happen if, if, uh, in that space, if a basic income were applied? Back in the late 1960s, early 1970s, uh, the, under President Nixon, um, they looked at replacing welfare with what they call the family assistance plan. And the concern that a lot of um, a lot of the governors and, and members of Congress expressed was that it would cause people to give up work. So what um, what the government in the United States and then later in Canada separately did was they commissioned some what are called the work incentive experiments. So they they did on a smaller scale what Finland is about, apparently about to do in terms of um, you know paying a group a con, uh, paying a group of people the, the guaranteed basic income and then having a control group who they, who didn't get the basic income and they compared the work behaviour of uh, the people who were receiving the payment 
versus the people who weren't in the experiment. And what, and what did they find in that? The results varied uh, in, depending on where they did it. So they, they had an experiment in, um, in Pennsylvania, an experiment in uh, um, uh, Indiana, uh, one in uh, Seattle and at the same time in Denver and another one in, I think, a rural part of the country. Um, the results varied, but when you looked across the whole four of those experiments, the there was a very minor reduction in hours of work of adult men. Uh, there was a more substantial reduction in hours of work by women, um, most of whom... Uh, spent more time looking after children than they had previously. Um, and there was also a moderately substantial reduction in hours of work of young people, most of whom spent more time in education than they had previously. Now, so you could interpret at the time the, the spending more time in education as a positive, um, but you saw reductions in hours of work averaged across everybody of between about 2% and 10%. So the question is whether you think those are big. 10% sounds pretty big. But the thing about that is that back in the 1960s and 1970s, uh, most of that was in the reduction in hours of work by women. You know, sort of at that time, women were in the United States, in Australia and other countries as well, were much more likely, less likely to be in the paid labour force than they are now. So you might not find that response now compared to what you found back um, 40 years ago. Having said that, these were smaller scale experiments but, and they didn't involve tax rates of 50 or 60%. But we'll, if we look at the results of the Finnish experiment in a few years' time, we'll have a better idea of um, what those impacts might be. Most of the, you touched on the Finnish experiment, most of the projects that are happening around the world at the moment seem to be happening in the Northern Hemisphere. How long do you think it will be before we see a project happen in the Asia-Pacific region? Well, there's, um, there's a lot of interest. Uh, it's quite separate, in, particularly in countries in Asia, about how you provide social protection to populations. The first interest in this was actually in Latin America and in sort of Brazil and uh, Mexico. And back in the 1990s, they started introducing what are called conditional cash transfers. So they, they were one level, they were very unlike a universal basic income. But what it meant was that for the first time, very poor people in Brazil and Mexico were given cash benefits, but they had to do things like get their children immunised and send their children to school as a condition of getting it. Uh, more recently, um, in the last 10, 10 to 15 years, there have been a lot of countries, particularly in Africa, that have introduced um, unconditional payments, uh, and there is some discussion about introducing it in, in India. I mean, these are countries with much lower levels of um, social security programs than Australia or, or European countries or North America. But it, one of the issues that's important is is that um, if you that social insurance systems where people have to contribute to get their benefits or means tested payments where you know sort of you look at people's assets and incomes in determining what their levels of payment they get. Uh, pretty complex to administer. So the idea of uh, paying everybody a certain amount of cash or paying poor people a certain amount of cash um, has its advantages. But, uh, you know, it depends on uh, the size of the population you want to pay. And I think a sort of a full universal basic income uh, is probably beyond the, the capacity of a, a lot of low-income countries to finance in terms of uh, simply because their, their, their tax levels are, are not high enough to, to be able to afford it. 
Some fascinating insights there. And uh, thank you very much for your time, Peter. Thanks, Martin. I hope you're enjoying this pod as much as I enjoyed making it. We've heard some fascinating and provocative insights from some of the world's leading lights in this area. If you are enjoying it and you're feeling generous, we would really appreciate it if you could leave us a quick review on iTunes. It'll only take 30 seconds or so, and doing so will be a big help to us in getting the word out about the series. Now let's turn all of that theory into practice and have a closer look at the Finland experiment that you've heard some of our interviewees talking about. Earlier this week, I caught up with Professor Oli Kangas. Oli is the leader of the research group planning the experiment in Finland, which gets underway very soon. Here's what he had to say. Professor Oli Kangas, welcome to Policy Forum Pod. Thank you very much. Oli, there were a number of different models of basic income considered for the experiment in Finland, including a full basic income that replaces almost all insurance-based benefits and a negative income tax that provides income via the taxation system. But in the end, you went with a partial basic income. Can you explain what this means and why you chose that model? It's good to have a basic income that's somehow corresponding to the level of the existing basic uh, basic security that we have now. But on top of that, those income-related benefits are floating. So that, that was the rationality or rational behind behind our, our uh, reasoning. What's the scope of this experiment? How many people will it involve and for how long will it go? Uh, we have a budget of uh, 20 million euros and it's for two years. But uh, just now it seems to be so that uh, we will start with uh, 2,000 persons uh, in the beginning of next year and then expand the uh, experiment uh, in the beginning of 2018. And what is it you're hoping to find out from the experiment? There are a couple of things that we are interested in. The first thing is that uh, we are interested in employment effects because uh, for the time being, we have a social security system that uh, is not that uh, extremely work incentive. There are lots of disincentives uh, in the system that uh, is based on a couple of income-related basic uh, security schemes. A person can get income-related unemployment compensation. On top of that, the person can get income-related housing allowance. On top of that, the person can get income-related or uh, income-related uh, in that way that it's uh, inversely income-related uh, social assistance. And it means that every year that person is getting from employment will diminish social benefits by one euro so that the marginal tax rates can be 100% or even more. So that by by now, the government is hoping that if you have a solid base for basic security, in that case, if person gets an employment, the person's money from employment doesn't reduce the basic security and therefore it's easier for for, the person to accept work offers even they were a short term. And also, in very many cases, people are a little bit afraid if somebody is unemployed and getting the unemployment compensation, the person is very, let's say so that he or she is not that keen to accept work offers because the person is afraid of losing the unemployment money. And 
if the qualifying once again to that money is a little bit complicated. Social security, in the case of unemployment, uh, when it comes to self-employed, it's not that good in this country. The benefits for employees are pretty good, but uh, if somebody is self-employed, then uh, his or her unemployment protection is uh, is not that good. And uh, the government is hoping that if you have a basic income, then it's easier for persons to uh, start their own enterprise. And uh, when the labor markets are changing so that we have more and more uh, self-employed, micro, self-employed, uh, freelancers, etc., etc., so that the social security system doesn't anymore that well correspond to those uh, labor market situations that uh, that we have here. So that it's a, also a kind of trial to modernize our social security to better correspond to changes in, in labor markets. So that there are lots of hopes and lots of uh, visit for effects that we are interested in. And let's see what will happen. If it is a success, what happens next? Uh, success is uh, in the eye of the beholder. Opponents will always say that it wasn't a success. And also the proponents will always say that uh, it was a great success. So that uh, in the final end, it's a very political process and very political question, uh, despite the fact that we are carrying out this experiment. I think that the inevitable result is whatever the results from the experiments are and whatever the next government will be, is that uh, we have to do something with our basic security because uh, Kela is paying out more than 100 different uh, basic security benefits so that it's uh, I think that uh, we must merge together uh, lots of those benefits uh, from the bureaucratic uh, reasons because it's very uh, time consuming and also manpower consuming to have that many different schemes and if you can reduce the number of those Schemes. It's uh, very good for the clients, it's very good uh, for the bureaucracy, and it's uh, very good for uh, public finances. And very much depends uh, on which kind of cabinet we will have after the, the uh, experiment, because the Social Democratic Party that's just now in opposition, they are a little bit skeptical, uh, and perhaps not that little, so that they are very much cri- uh, critical against the the, the uh, basic income idea, so that uh, if the Social Democrats will be in the next cabinet and if the Social Democrats will be the Prime Minister party, in that case, uh, nothing will happen. But if the centre will continue, then perhaps uh, something uh, will happen. Do you talk there about it being both a, a policy and a political challenge, but it looks like the idea of a basic income seems to have fairly strong support in Finland across a range of political parties and views. Why do you think that is? And why has Finland been able to do that where the Swiss referendum on basic income failed? Uh, in Finland, uh, is a very solid support uh, among some political parties, among the general public, there's a solid support because people think that uh, we must do something with our basic security. That's not good enough and there are too many holes and people are falling through the safety net holes. 
And uh, that's why people are thinking that, uh, that that basic income would be a solution. But uh, on the other hand, we conducted several surveys. And uh, when we asked at the general level that the if basic income is a good or bad idea, in that case, uh, 70% of the Finns said that it's a very good idea or good idea. But when we then said that uh, what is the level of flat rate tax that should be collected on top of, or, or on income that will come on top of the basic income. And then the uh, support was much less. It was something like 40%. So that when uh, people have to pay something, it's very easy to say that, okay, the, if I get something, then I, I support the idea. But if I have to pay uh, from that, people are more or less skeptical. Somehow it seems to be so that the Finns are very uh, fond of all basic security and basic things and uh, equality and with the idea that nobody w- shouldn't be left behind. And uh, there's a very strong that kind of thinking in the, uh, in the country. So that I think that it has very deep roots also in that kind of equality thinking that uh, that is very important for the Finns. And finally, Oli, how long do you think it will be before we see basic income being implemented on a countrywide scale? Could Finland be the first cab off the rank in that respect? <laughs> yeah, it, uh, uh, it's a political process and it's very difficult to say what will happen. But, uh, at least I think uh, we will simplify our basic security on the basis of this experiment and it's a very important and big step also. Okay, well, we'll be very interested to see how the experiment goes. Uh, Professor Oli Kangas, many thanks for your time. Yeah, th- thanks to you. It really will be interesting to see how that Finland experiment pans out and you'd expect the results, if they're positive, could really provide an impetus for other projects at some stage of development or governments who've thrown their weight behind the idea. So we've heard about how a basic income could share the world's wealth more equally and how it could be used to replace the entire welfare structure in the US and what it might actually cost to do. So what's your take on it? Is it an achievable or a desirable thing? And what would you do if your income were taken care of? Drop us a line on Twitter. We are at Apps Policy Forum or Facebook, where we are Asia Pacific Policy Society. Or just leave us a comment on Policy Forum. We'll be interested to hear your take on it all. Don't forget, you can keep up to date with public policy issues throughout the region at policyforum.net and find more about the basic income, including some links that you might find interesting. We'll be back in a fortnight with another Policy Forum pod. Until then, cheerio. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com.